welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. I'm Irina. And today we're reviewing Beetlejuice, starring Gina Davis, Alec Baldwin, Winona Ryder, Catherine O'Hara, Jeffrey Jones, Glenn Shaddix, Robert Goulet, and Michael Keaton. Directed by Tim Burton, released in 1988 on a $15 million budget, grossed $74 million plus at the box office, and is considered a cult classic, dare I say. So I want to start with my two co-hosts here, the my two favorite weirdos, as I like to say often. <laughs> Where and when did you first get introduced to the film known as Beetlejuice? Well, uh, in my case, it was 1988. Ronald Reagan was in the White House. America was rounding to a new dawn or whatever his campaign slogan was. Uh, and yeah, I watched it when I was a kid, not at the, the movies, of course, uh, but at the as a home rental. And I watched it several times. My cousin had uh, a Beetlejuice toy and everything. So it was kind of a big deal in uh, my family. I was introduced to this movie in 2010 because apparently I'm a late bloomer. <laughs> Never really um, had heard about it, but I did, just didn't have a desire to see it. Even though I love Michael Keaton. I saw this specifically with my family in the theaters because we were total marks for Michael Keaton. Because we had all seen Mr. Mom in the theater together, had watched it at home many times, like taping it off a of Showtime or something. And we were all for him. I'd even seen Gung Ho. You know, I, oh, wow. I was all for Michael Keaton. <laughs> okay. Um, and I didn't know who Tim Burton was at the time. I would know him you know, later. I wasn't a big Pee Wee fan. I know, I know. Wasn't something I really hooked into. So I didn't know him from that. I just saw the trailer to this and thought, that looks fun. And like every kid my age, Winona Ryder was my crush for Gen X and particularly my brother who had this whole thing for her. And so I was down for this. I was like, yes, let's go watch this. It's even got the guy from Howard the Duck in it, Jeffrey Jones, which is another thing I knew. And so oh. I remember going to see this and I distinctly remember being thoroughly confused about what it was I had just watched. <laughs> and I've, I've watched it again several times since, you know, and when we were kicking around stuff to do, I mean, it's not an anniversary or anything. I mean, this is 32 years old at this point. It was just one of those, I, I don't know. It's a film I always use as an example of when people have a great idea, but they don't really know how to end it, which also describes the way my band worked. Cause we always had great starts to songs. We could just never figure out a way to end them, especially live. And I feel like Tim Burton movies sort of work that way. I, in fact, I can't tell you a single one that I think has a satisfying third act. Mm, I think I can agree with that. Almost. Maybe. Yeah. I, I've got no arguments on that. His movies always fall apart in the third act. So, yeah, it's just something about them, right? Like they just don't congeal completely. It's like, I don't know, it's like a souffle and you pull it out of the oven just a little too quick. You know, I, I don't know. And so I've read a lot about this movie through the years and stuff, and it's always been in the back of my head. And I, it's one of those I keep rewatching because I, I think I keep expecting it to be better than it possibly can be. 
I, I feel the same way. And, and now that we're sitting here, I'm kind of recalling that there is one Tim Burton movie that um, has a satisfying ending, but he didn't write it. <laughs> well, he didn't write this one either, to be fair. Well, no, no, but, but he, Sweeney Todd was a musical before he even got his hands on it, and it had a satisfying ending. I don't know how you screw up Charlie and the Chocolate Factory either, by the way. That has a total arc in it, but whatever. Uh, I, re- <laughs> I did see that recently for the first time, by the way, and okay <laughs> i think i made it like maybe 30 minutes into that one so you know that's a tough one even like my 11 year old niece was like this is not really working for me and i'm like okay you know we well, can change this out. it's all right i don't <laughs> know if they could have made willy wonka creepier or not you know I, just based on gene wilder and then they went and did it and i was like whoops because because the words starring johnny depp automatically adds a level of creep to anything Hey, you know what, but this one, Beetlejuice did not have Johnny Depp in it, so. No, because he was not even a thing yet, so I think he was, this is, this is 21 Jump Street days right here, this is Yeah, he was a a thing. This was like when he was about to leave 21 Jump Street to be a movie star. Oh, okay. This is like they were making the transition to Greco. Yeah, this was like, this was like two years before Edward Scissorhands, so we're really not that far off. This is a movie we've all seen before. Irene, you've seen it more recently than as we were introduced to it. We've all seen it <laughs> multiple times. Um, and there, there's actually a big reason, though, that I wanted to do it on this show. And I've asked Irene to hold that until the end of this podcast because I want to talk about this movie and what put it kind of back in my brain was something you introduced to me. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. But I guess for maybe people that hadn't seen it in a while, we should go through a plot summary. So. I've wrote something out, Ron. See what you can do with it, and we'll we'll tell people what Beetlejuice is about. Sounds great, Jay. Barbara and Adam Maitland love their life together in their beautiful Connecticut country home. Now they get to haunt it in the afterlife following a car crash which resulted in their deaths, though it takes them a little while to learn this. While the two wonder what to do next, with only the handbook for the recently deceased to guide them, New York real estate tycoon Charles Dietz moves with his new wife Delia and his teenage daughter Lydia into the house, and starts changing everything the Maitlands loved about it. Barbara and Adam seek assistance in ridding their home of these interlopers, but they find the afterlife as a bureaucracy as they wait to meet a caseworker after failing to use their new powers as ghosts effectively. Thus enter a freelance bio-exorcist named Beetlejuice, who promises to rid the house of the new family, but whose methods scare off Barbara and Adam. After warnings not to trust him from their caseworker Juno, Adam and Barbara decide to try and scare off the unwanted family, only to have it backfire as the Dietz's plan to make a tourist attraction out of the haunted house, while Lydia, who can see the ghost couple, almost conjures Beetlejuice before Barbara and Adam intervene. The Dietz's enlist the help of their friend Otho to perform a seance to summon Barbara and Adam for investigators to see, but he unwittingly performs an exorcism as our hero couple starts to decay. Left with no other choice, Lydia calls on Beetlejuice, who only agrees to intervene if she will marry him, which will somehow release him from his exile or something. Beetlejuice does as he promised, but as the dark wedding begins, Barbara and Adam attempt to thwart Beetlejuice's plans until he sends Barbara into the sandworm dimension and incapacitates Adam. Before the marriage is complete, however, Barbara returns riding a sandworm, which takes Beetlejuice out and restores order in the house. In the final scenes, we see the Dietzes and Maitlands living happily in the house together as Beetlejuice waits in line for service in the afterlife, and Harry Belafonte sings us home. What? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's an exact quote from Michael Keaton, who talks about 
meeting Tim Burton and how much he loves Tim Burton and wanted to work with him. But he said the first time he laid this on me, I said, what? <laughs> he did not get it. And together, they kind of crafted that character. And a lot of what you see, I know a lot of people say like, oh, man, Tim Burton made Michael Keaton. This weird. You got to go back and watch like old Michael Keaton stuff. Michael Keaton was a zany dude. You know, back in the day, before he got like serious and started doing Birdman and all that kind of stuff, he he did a lot of zany comedy, and this is right there in it. And that's I think this is why a lot of people when they found out he was going to be Batman lost their friggin' minds because they could not imagine <laughs> something so different for such a what's supposed to be such a serious character and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that's every time I I've read that plot summary or I read the plot or watch this movie, my first thing is what. It's funny that you mentioned, Jay, that Michael Keaton didn't get it because he's not the only person who didn't get it. One of the executives who had originally like bought the script and greenlit it at Universal ended up getting fired over it because his bosses didn't get it either. Holy so cow. You've got, so you've got the super hot Tim Burton who's interested in this property, but the, the studio executives are like, no, this – this doesn't make any sense. I don't like this. Get rid of it, and you're fired. I mean, Ron brings this up. Executives didn't get it. They're, they're, uh, being somebody who's a theater person, there have been times that I have sat with play reading committees or even auditioned actors who just didn't get the roles, and you know, you don't get cast. Um, if we have somebody on staff for, for a production team, we'll be like, mm, if you don't get it, let's, you know, let's move you out and replace you with something else. It's done a lot nicer than just firing somebody but that's because it's it's volunteer that i work in right but it's still the same story comes in and, I, and it should be said that a lot of the reason this movie eventually got finished and people let burton alone on the set and do it was because michael keaton signed on and it's funny because keaton did his work in two weeks and was gone you know he was off shooting clean and sober which came out later in 1988 and if you've never seen it i highly recommend it Great drama. It's not something we'll probably ever review here, but really good movie, and he's great in it. But he, you know, he did his work in just a little bit, but he didn't understand what this was supposed to be. He just got really jazzed about the idea of playing a character that was from every time and from no time at the same time, and he could do all this, you know, goofy stuff. And he, you know, he would he didn't really have to commit to it that much, but his name on it meant a lot, even though again he's only in less than twenty minutes of the thing. As I rewatched the movie today, I actually thought back and I was like, when was Batman released? And I thought, this must have been a great inspiration for Jack Nicholson with the Joker. I don't know if Jack Nicholson does was doing that much work by then. I think he might have already been on the downslope of his career where he just is showing up and doing his thing and leaving. That's an interesting thought, though, because you're not wrong now that you've made that connection for me. I'll have to go back and rewatch Burton's, you know, Batman because uh, – Whatever you know, Nicholson's doing in that movie is it is eerily similar to what uh, Keaton does in this. It's uh, well, strange. Ironically, he did you know Witches of Eastwick right before Beetlejuice was released, so maybe they like kind of inspired one another. Can I just tell you that one's missing from my watch lexicon? I have not seen the Witches of Eastwick. Witches of Eastwick. I don't uh, think that was in my like. I don't think it's made for me. Does that make sense? I don't think that that's something I should watch. So. Uh, I do remember my mother liking it, though, quite a bit. So My mother loved it, too, and that's probably the reason I watched it. But my dad's like this huge Jack Nicholson fan, so we watched anything. Anyway, I digress. Well, the, the point being is he didn't get it, but he wasn't the only one. 
Alec Baldwin will tell you he hates himself in this movie. He doesn't hate this movie. He just doesn't know what it's supposed to be, but he will tell you, I didn't know what I was doing. I hated it. I didn't, I didn't want to be there. I felt bad for Gina. I felt bad for everybody. I don't think anybody knew what was happening. And he will <laughs> tell you, I gave a bad performance. And I'm going to say for the first and probably last time in my life, I completely and totally agree with Alec Baldwin. He gives a oh my God. performance in this movie. I disagree with you. I thought they were both adorable. Oh, Gina Davis is always good. Even in bad things, Gina Davis is good. And to me, she carries this. That's why I listed her first in the cast list. Because for <laughs> me, this is her movie. All right, Alec Baldwin sucks in this. He is so, he's trying to be like supportive husband guy and bumbling idiot from the 1950s sitcom world at the same time. And it just doesn't work. Oh, it may not be his best performance, but I think it's his most innocent performance. That is also probably true. now it's funny that you mentioned that uh he's doing a bumbling 1950s house husband performance because i had forgotten that the maitlands weren't from the 50s like i hadn't i hadn't realized that they were like from the late 80s and they were just two like backwater weirdos they were they're like ozzy and harriet stuck in this you know, gorgeous, huge house in the middle of nowhere, Connecticut. And to, I mean, got to have some sweet jobs, though, to one, afford a house like that. But to be able to close your business for two weeks so you can just take vacation. Holy cow, man. That's amazing. Every small business in the world would love to do that. Oh, absolutely. Especially somebody who owns a hardware store. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. in that tiny town in Connecticut, how many people are going to buy hardware constantly enough to keep that business um, going? Well, they probably don't have any overhead. That's probably like a family business that they've owned that building for 100 years or whatever. Maybe it could have been. And I I kind of felt like this was supposed to be small town America, you know, the thing that's going away. And I, I mean, I'll be honest with you, like the movie itself, it has a story arc. I, I kind of think Tim Burton and the people that wrote this are trying to say something else about the way the city life has, is going in and trying to corrupt the more innocent part of America or something in the 1980s. I mean, there's all these jokes about yuppies and condos and all Charles Dietz wants to do is renovate the whole place. And he's always looking for a scam. I, Jeffrey Jones is sitting in a chair with his knee bouncing up and down going, I've been here 10 minutes. I'm totally relaxed. And he looks like he's you know, done a line of cocaine and six shots of coffee, you know? And I'm like, what? I mean, they're trying to say something about those people invading small town America. I think. I think they are, but um, I, you know, you said something about uh, Charles wanting to revamp the entire thing, and his whole thing through the entire movie is, "I want to keep the integrity." He wants to leave everything the same to the point that he wants to keep Adams' um, office looking the same. He doesn't want his wife, his current wife, to change anything. But he also suggests to uh, Robert Goulet that the real estate company come in and buy the entire town and turn it into like a yuppie enclave. Well, that, but that's after he decides – or that's after the there's a reveal about ghosts being in the area and everything. He doesn't try to sell that point until after there's something to sell. No, he says that oh, – no. doesn't he say that before the, he finds the ghosts? He, he does. He's does doing he? bird watching, and he's he's looking out over the town going – Oh, because he sees that other the, – the brick building with the nice yeah. roof. Yeah, he's trying to sell it from the beginning. Like that's his whole thing. At least that's the way I read it. That sounds like the way you saw it too. 
Yeah, like like he can't actually turn it off. Right. Yeah, and I think that's the joke, right? Is that these people escape to Connecticut and Pennsylvania and all these places outside of the city to try to get away, and they really don't get away. They just bring it with them. And what does that do when you introduce that into the town? I mean, the Catherine O'Hara is the thing that saves any bit of this movie for me. Catherine O'Hara. Catherine O'Hara is amazing in this movie. <laughs> she is awesome. She comes in and she. I mean. First off, whoever did costume design on this with her, genius. She's always doing like these like one-arm gloves and she wears the glove as a hat and she's wearing a sweater as a dress. I mean, upside down. Like she's all kind of doing uh, the minute she walks into the this room though, the look on her face as she walks into like country living and dressed the way she is, it's it's a total performance. She is awesome in this movie. Yeah, I think if anybody in the cast gets it, she got she got it. And she got what she was supposed to be, for sure. Right. She she there's no confusion about her role. She is definitely like 200% dialed in uh, and from from for the whole thing. And it's it, it really is like one of the things that jumps out the most on having on the most recent rewatch for the the show is like, man, Catherine O'Hara really ties this whole thing together. Like she's just the worst kind of person in the best possible way for this movie. <laughs> yes, yes, she is total like yuppie trash, right? But she is despicable. You don't want to love her at all. You you don't. But 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 she's not a horrible person per se. She just has taste that absolutely does not go with this place, and she is not going to let that go. And she's that great scene where he's trying to not get her to change the office you're right about that and she, she's like if you don't let me get this house and change it i'm gonna be crazy and take you with me and she just loses her mind and then she just i don't know she comes by and like she licks his nose and she does all kinds oh. of weird little performance things i'm like, i love that though i'm like that's somebody that absolutely gets she is supposed to be the total fish out of water here and she is playing it to the hilt and i love the fact that she goes so big all the time Oh yeah, you know, and I, and I appreciate that because she is a character actress. I mean, she that's that's her thing. Um, but I do have a big note written down in a notebook that says the tongue lick. Ew. <laughs> because I saw it and I was like, what the hell did she just do? She did that, and it probably was one of those things that she did on that specific take. And they said, oh crap, that was so good, we can't redo this scene. Like we're done. Look, I, aside from what he is as a person, and we're going to leave that over here, Jeffrey Jones, credit to him for not, like, jumping. Like, he just sits there for it. I'm <laughs> he like, barely had a reaction. It was I great. Know, it leads me to think, I'm like, I wonder if, like, they did that, and he was like, wait, wait a minute, what? And she's like, no, don't move. Just trust me. <laughs> just, so, just stay right there. Yeah, and he doesn't. To, to his credit, he doesn't. And so that, I, I'll say this now, like, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis, it's not that they don't have chemistry. They're kind of cute together, again, in that sort of Ozzy and Harriet way stuck in the 80s or whatever. I don't really get them. I don't know. They're not as interesting to watch for me. And that's bad to say because they're the main characters, really, of the whole film. The Dietzes are much more fun. Ironically enough, having grown up in the middle of nowhere in Vermont, I actually enjoyed Gina and Alec in these parts because that's what I grew up with. Um, I, I felt 
for me, and maybe it might have to do with my DNA structure as opposed to the two of you, um, or my chromosomes here. Um, I felt uh, a bond between them that wasn't there with the Dietzes. And I, I felt that that energy of like the put offness of the Dietzes kind of like invading the space. And it might be because I'm mm-hmm. just a little, a, a little weird in the, in the, in the homey environment, but um, I love Gina and Alec in these parts. Well, you're not wrong that they are a different kind of couple. The Dietzes are because the, it's not Lydia's mother. Like she d- goes out of her way to make sure that that is clear. Both of them do. Well, and, the, yeah. to, to me, the, the Dietzes definitely feel like this is my second wife. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like I, I married her when I was a coked out stockbroker or coked out real estate developer, and now I'm not coked out, and I have to live with this because I can't afford to get a divorce. <laughs> That's thank you, Ron. That is an excellent reading, and I agree. Yes, one hundred percent. Because Jay, Jay said, you know, she's got taste and everything, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if she's got taste, but she's definitely got a vision. <laughs> it's not that she has zero taste. Her taste okay. is all in her mouth. <laughs> uh, funny that you should mention that. I'm going to throw this out there now. This is a little theory that I came up with watching this for this <laughs> show. All right. That character is Tim Burton in the world of Hollywood. 100%. Nobody, nobody gets him, and he, but he's going to do it, or he's going to take you to crazy town with it. 100%. She is like the, the female uh Tim Burton right there on the screen complete with all of these these um, sculptures that she has brought into the house and I think my favorite moment is when she has this sculpture brought in the house that pins her to the side of the house and I think oh it's like a face hugger like legit she just got <laughs> pinned to the house by a face hugger I, this is my art I don't want to die like this <laughs> I don't want to die for my art but my, I my, am my art is dangerous yeah no I think we're, we spent a billion times more times on that character than we probably needed to but it's clearly <laughs> we all really like her performance um, we got to talk about Lydia though um, because again Winona Ryder big deal and still a big deal to this day um, I'm glad to see her getting a bit of a career resurgence with Stranger Things and stuff like that uh, but honestly, she never really went away. I have always thought this was the other person that maybe kind of got what this was supposed to be because she's like this was Tim Burton as a teenager. Yeah, she's definitely gave me more of the uh, Tim Burton weird outsider looking at all these strangeos kind of situation. Well, she's always walking around with a camera, all this stuff. She reads the handbook for the recently deceased you know, on her own. And she talks about, you know, I am strange and unusual and that's what it takes to be able to see ghosts usually and things like that. So she's very much the, I don't know, she's the intermediary between the two families. But what's neat is that the story, what have you believe, because they do this whole bit with like the real estate agents, like the nosiest real estate agent in the world, by the way. Oh, she's the worst. She's like the nosy next door neighbor. Yeah. You need to sell this house because you don't have a family. Excuse me. Like (laughs) I have neighbors that do that stuff. They're like, Hey, what are you doing? And they knock on the door and they look through the window and it's just creepy. And then in this movie, they have to drive to the middle of nowhere to knock on the door. And it's not that she just knocks on the front door and harasses Barbara. This woman takes the extra step to go down to the basement door and knock on that to bother the husband. Yeah, I got a whole Psycho 2 vibe off of that. It was very mm-hmm. strange, like the whole basement thing. It's very, very weird stuff going on there. But you got that going on, and you got this couple that hasn't 
started the family. They talk about maybe we could try again. You know, they're doing all that kind of stuff. And then you got the other family that has a kid that doesn't really want one. And by the end of it, the grim story is like, well, you can have the kid and we'll just do our cocaine upstairs or whatever. So, <laughs> so that's kind of what happens. I mean, it's, it's very weird. The family dynamic that is going on in this house. Uh, but it's all about Adam and Barbara, and we have to get to the, the big incident, the crash that kills them. And I got a question for y'all. They are sent to haunt the house, and we'll find out later they have to haunt the house for 125 years. Why? They didn't die in the house. They died on the bridge, which is far away from the house. Like, why did they get stuck to the house? You know, it's a it's a great question. And um, I, leading up to that, I just want to point out that there were like four random wandering dogs throughout this movie before they even hit the bridge and they try to swerve around that one dog and then die. But I think it's because they have this this love for the house and that was their passion. So, you know, if you think of like the theory about ghosts, they go back to what they love and that's what they hunt. So they really do have this attachment to the house because it's, I mean, that's where they wanted to start a family. Um, that's where they pictured spending the rest of their lives together. And, you know, they say that by, re- they don't say it verbally, but they say it by rejecting this um, real estate agent who's like, hey, you should sell this home. Well, and she was also, like, super excited about home renovations. They both were. Yes, absolutely. Because, I mean, right. they were taking their whole two-week vacation from the hardware store to work on their house. Well, which looked fine, by the way. And that wallpaper was a terrible mistake, Gina. That would have never worked. So, <laughs> uh, so. but anyway. Are there, are, are there a I've lot put of... up wallpaper like that. Now, come on. I've had to take down wallpaper and repaint over it for that. So. <laughs> Don't no. paint over wallpaper ever. No, no, no. Take it down, then paint the wall. So, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> this, is, this has been This Old House, the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> now, My gosh, it's so bad. Are there a lot of, like, one-lane covered bridges in Vermont? Yes. That's, well, that's where they shot this movie. It was shot in a town called Corinth, Vermont. All of the uh, covered bridges in Vermont are one-lane bridges, which sucks when you have, like, five people following you because y'all have to take turns. It's so true. And all of these bridges, they're literally one lane. They have, like, I don't know what they are. They've got to be, like, eight-by-twos or something, I'm oh, guessing wow. here, that are, like, the tracks <laughs> that your tires sit on as you go over these bridges. Wow. I, all I was thinking was The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which is funny because it's a Tim Burton movie. But, I mean, really, like, I was like... This, <laughs> well, why'd I, you have to go there? And then you went back to Johnny Depp. Look at what you just did. <laughs> that's what I grew up thinking New England looked like, was full of that stuff. So, I bought but it. But that's what it looks like. I'm not kidding you. I grew up in a town of, like, population 800 when I was born. They're only up to, like, 1,500 now. This is, like, the real thing, even, like... Now, one of the thoughts I had when I was watching this movie again was I feel bad that Jeffrey Jones is a pedophile because I think he's great in so many things at this. He's not he's not necessarily great at this kind of like, pardon the pun, straight man role where he's like the normal guy in 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 a scenario full of weirdos. But like him and Ferris Bueller or him and Deadwood, he's great. I watch him in this and I'm like, man. I wish I could forget that he's a monster. I know, right? And just watch the performance. But to go back to what you said, I think this is a movie populated by weirdos. I don't think there's a single normal person in this whole thing. 
Everybody here is weird. The dog that steps off the thing that lets the car crash is weird. The that is daughter, a weird dog. Yeah, that's <laughs> the daughter of the real estate agent's weird. Everybody's weird. <laughs> this whole movie is weird because Tim Burton loves weird. That is his thing. He is the king of weird. And if we don't acknowledge that, then there's a problem. But no, I love Jeffrey Jones and I love him in, you know, just about everything he's done. And it does break my heart a little bit. A little bit. Maybe a lot bit. Well, so, I've, I've derailed the podcast in no, a completely different direction from the... <laughs> moving on. No, I've got, I've, got, I've got it. So what about the fact that we don't even see Beetlejuice until 25 minutes into this movie? Like, you kind of see him from behind after they're dead and he's flipping through the paper like 10, 15 minutes into the movie and stuff. Yeah, yeah, but, we get him for like 30 seconds. Yeah. Where he discovers... Really- the yeah, but I, I want to talk about when we first see him, okay? It's that commercial. He comes on the old television set because he's inhabiting it or whatever. And Michael Keaton is doing this, like, Buford T. Justice rip-roaring cowboy from hell <laughs> thing. That I, I, But honestly, I'm looking at it, I'm going, like, I see every Rob Zombie character ever right now. You're not <laughs> wrong. It's right there. <laughs> yes, definitely. What is that performance supposed to be? I know it's not technically his introduction, but really it is. It's the first time we see his face. This is Michael Keaton. This is what he came up with. And Tim Burton said, yes, go with it. Like almost everything Michael Keaton says when he's doing riffing stuff is Michael Keaton. When he's doing lines that are actually parts of the thing, it, you know, he's only got like little bits of dialogue. But when he's doing this kind of stuff, it's Michael Keaton just doing his, I don't know, impersonation of coked out ghost. I don't know what. It's it like is. a used car salesman. Yes, but very, I don't know, like beyond used car salesman. I don't know. Like y'all ever see those like weird commercials for like you know the Law Hawk and stuff like that that make internet memes around the internet. You know this this crazy you know people that just go out of their way to they're usually personal injury lawyers and oh, stuff like a, that. Yeah, we have a guy who buys a. Uh, Super Bowl ad every year, and he spends oh, wow. like hundreds of thousands of dollars on these insane commercials. Like he had one that was a whole Avengers riff that was like a two-minute commercial, <laughs> and he's famous for these. But we also have a guy who is a used car dealer uh, who is famous for his extremely loud radio commercials. So wow. to me, he's like a combination of Daryl Isaacs, who's the personal injury lawyer who always has the big high-budget commercials. And the car dealer, whose name is Tony Melito, the dealer for the people, who is always wearing like wow. a crazy jacket, like a crazy like American flag jacket. And he's screaming at the camera while his employees are like doing the Harlem Shake or whatever behind him. <laughs> Let me ask you, will he chew on a dog to get your business? Because <laughs> Michael Gaten lays that out to somebody. <laughs> I, I, I have no doubt that he would. It's the same kind of energy, just like Michael Keaton's is funny and Tony Melito is like – just shrieking <laughs> about values. I, I do think Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin, like they're looking at nothing. So they didn't know what it was, but the looks on their faces are just blank. Huh? <laughs> you are exactly what most of the audience had to be. It's exactly what I think. Every time I see that, I'm like, what a weird way to bring somebody into a movie. <laughs> it's because you've got all this other stuff going on. And then there's that. Well, to be fair, that's not like, that's not necessarily the, the how we see him come into the movie because we get him reading the want ads. 
So we can kind of establish from his muttering while he looks through the paper that he's some kind of like grifter type. True. That's fair. So I, just, like, I don't know. Let me, just, Cause it was like, let me see who I can con. Oh, here's some idiots. Yeah. He does say they're kind of stupid looking. So, uh, which is, it's a, by the way, strange photo to throw in the, uh, the obituary, by the way. Um, yeah. It's not, American Gothic. Let's, let, let's be fair. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's American Gothic, but you know, uh, f- funny enough for me, um, I haven't, and you guys know me enough to know that I have to take a million notes so that I remember anything. But I have a big note that says, okay, way to make a non-entrance. So being a theater person, like, you introduce a main character, especially a character that is carries the, the movie's namesake. Um, there's no big entrance for him. It, it really is anticlimactic. Like, I always – and maybe this is why I haven't watched this movie more than twice <laughs> – is there's no like real excitement to when he comes on the screen here. Well, it's because when they do finally bring him into the movie, which is about 45 minutes into it, it is this big five minutes of just craziness that happens inside of the model and stuff like that. But it's almost like they wanted to tease us this stuff, but I'm with you, Irene. I don't do theater, but even I know like, this is a strange way to bring in the character to a film. I think I I think I even wrote down like what a tease. Like why? Mm-hmm. Why don't don't tease us like that? Like either go all the way or stop. Like don't give it to us. You know, you just got to give us something. Well, what it, what it kind of makes me think of is speaking of Tim Burton movies, we've already digressed about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It makes me think of the opening of or Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory when you see Gene Wilder hobble out and then the stick comes out from under him and he falls, but he rolls and does the somersault or whatever. It makes me think of that. It's yeah. like this kind of, you can't trust this guy. Well, and I can see too that Keaton has already said like, this guy's a little bit of this and he's a little bit of that. And he's got this going on. And like, he, he talks about, you can watch there's interviews out there where he talks about like, I, I got the wardrobe department and just send me a rack of like something from every decade. And I started putting stuff together and started trying to, you know, he's one of those gets in a mindset kind of guys. And he started just dreaming this stuff up with Tim Burton. And this is what came out. It, it's very jarring. I mean, one thing you can say about this movie, whether you like it or not, we're getting to that point is you'll, you won't forget like when you saw that, because it is, it is a striking look that they've given this character when they introduce him finally. Yeah, he's 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 half decomposed, half not. Um, but one of the things I have written down here is um, how much I love the costuming. You know, you you talked about Catherine O'Hara's costuming. They did a great job costuming the entire movie, um, and the set was perfect to kind of relay that disconnect between Barbara and Adam and um, you know the Deeses that moved in. Yeah, the transition to their house is staggering. When they go away finally to uh, search for help or whatever, and then they come back, it's like they came into a completely different place. Right. And the funny thing is, is they they feel like they've been gone for like an hour, but it's been, you know, forever. It's been two months. Two months? Is it two months? Yeah. Yeah. Can I it's tell you this? Yeah. Can I tell you the, the cool thing about this movie that I like? Normally, I would get like angry at movies that have rules that are they're playing by, but they're not explaining them to the audience. But in this one, they're giving you just enough that you can keep up with. And they're letting you know, like, 
you're not going to know all the rules. Like Ali Baldwin has a great line where he's reading through the book. He's like, this reads like stereo instructions. You know, it's like, I, I don't know. I can't explain any of it. And I, I look at that as Tim Burton going like, I can't explain the afterlife. I don't know. It's probably like a crappy civil service office, you know, or something like that. <laughs> and then, you know, you go and you think, you think you've been there a week, you've been there for 10 days, you know, whatever. And it, you figure it all out and you just sort of go with it. And I, I like the fact that they don't explain how the rules work, but we get to experience them. I mean, it's through all kinds of stuff. Like, the, you know, he walks off the porch and then he's in the sand world. Barbara goes through a, another door and sees, you know, getting chased by that double-headed sandworm snake thing. I mean, I, I'm looking at that going like, it's like Dune, but worse. You know, I mean, it's it would somehow, I, there's all kinds of strange, weird stuff that's jammed in this movie that they never bothered giving you the reason for, but somehow all of that still works because I will say like the first act of this and even into the second act, I'm still going with the movie. It's still working mostly because I, there's four or five performers that are really trying to give something. And then there's Alec Baldwin, but everybody else is really trying to do something. <laughs> you know, and one person that we've missed in discussion here is uh, the character of Juno and I think she's my favorite character in the entire movie. And it's Sylvia Sidney, who was in a million different movies before she was in this one. She really gets her character. Um, we keep talking about the people who get this movie. Forget getting the movie. She gets her character. Um, her character, who has a slit throat and is smoking as many cigarettes as she possibly can. She started performing in like 1927. So she's older than dirt. Um, and she came back to do something in Mars Attacks. But um, I I enjoy her. She played one of the aliens because she looks like them. I don't, <laughs> I don't remember. But she was, the, I was, as I'm rewatching it, I was like, dang, I got to make a note about her because she's my favorite thing the entire movie. And I remember from the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, wait, they have her exhaling her smoke through her like slit throat scar. Um, and she's instrumental in this because she used to be Beetlejuice's, you know, basically her manager or her counterpart. Um, and they used to do their jobs together. Well, and that's something that it's actually the Otho character that drops the joke about if you kill yourself, you become a civil servant in the afterlife. Everybody that works in the office all kill themselves. Miss Argentina well, like, at the front desk. The guy oh, I love her. in the mail is hanging by people. The guy that threw himself in front of a bus is the file. Like all of those people kill themselves. And what is not in the movie, but if you read the behind the scenes stuff, Beetlejuice is supposed to have been somebody who also killed himself, like hung himself. And Which they, does not surprise me at all. It, it took it out of the movie, but it's, yeah. So all of these people are sort of destitute of this life of service uh, for people. But what's funny is the afterlife as a bureaucracy. The idea of that is it's kind of funny to think about. I mean, it is some good comedy. I'll, I'll admit. Yeah. I thought that that part really worked for me too. Um, Cause while they're sitting there in that waiting room, I've just had flashbacks to every time I've had to go to like the DMV or the County yes. clerk's office or something and how it feels like you're there forever, but you've, you're, you've only been there five minutes or, you know, it, it feels I, like you've, you've been there an hour, but it feels like you've been there all day. I think well, it and, depends on what you're there for, because I know if I go to the DMV, I'm there for like 20 minutes and I'm out. But my husband goes and he's there for a good hour and a half. But I mean, look look at that. I mean, you've got the shrunken head guy. Uh, you've got the, the guy that shrunk his head that he shot sitting next to him on the couch. So that's awkward. And then you got the surfer with the shark attached. 
Um, you you got the guy in the sleeping bag with the rattlesnake, the dude that fell asleep smoking in bed. I mean, just there's lots of creepy stuff in this. The guy that swallowed the chicken bone, you know, sideways. Uh, which how does that even work? I, never mind. And so yeah, it's, yeah. it's all big <laughs> chicken bone, man. That's gonna be like a turkey. He like that man was chewing. Rib. That man was chewing on a big freaking turkey leg down at like Disneyland or something or Disney World. Yeah, he got one of those Ren Fair turkey legs and and tried to eat the whole thing. Boom. There you go. But yeah, That's it's. It's funny because, like, the choked on a bone guy and the burnt up dude, it all kind of ties back to the sandworm being claymation in that it's like <laughs> Tim Burton's weird cartoon afterlife. Yes. It, yes. Like it's very much cartoon physics. <laughs> yeah, all of it. Can we, like, like, copyright door- that phrase? The, door- the doors are sideways. So. I mean, that dude's the, the guy who got run over by the bus, like, slide through a slot in the wall. Oh, my God. And it's amazing. It's probably one of my favorite moments in the movie because he starts out, like, serious. And Adam and Barbara are kind of like, oh, what happened? What happened? And you see them not take it seriously until they realize, wait, this whole place has been manufactured to allow that dude to slide on his um, pulley system <laughs> through the, the, the netherverse is what I called it. <laughs> Well, that's a good place to call it because I don't know what it is. You got the the guy who in the afterlife still has to mop the tang hall. <laughs> like, man, like, you don't we don't stop leaving residue when we're gone. Like that's well, it's obviously because the house is dusty and Barbara can't clean it because the vacuum cleaner's in the garage and we can't leave the house. So I mean, you know, those kind of things like that's sort of funny and it's not stuff you would pick up on the first time watching it. It's what makes this whole bit charming. It's also what frustrates the heck out of me about this movie. We'll talk about it when we get there. But the, the setup of all of this, I'm kind of going with. They get back to their house. They've been gone for three months. Juno tells them, no, I can't help you. Figure it out. You know, and then, and but by the way, don't mess with Beetlejuice. He's not worth it. Yeah, don't and, mention him at all. Right. And so they start to try to go and do stuff. They, they cut holes in the sheets. And we get, I found it funny that Lydia Dietz, Miss Art America woman, falls asleep watching like low rent wrestling on the television. I just, you've got to put that out there. It really made me happy. And I'm not a wrestling fan, but that moment when her lipstick is smeared up over her cheekbones and her eyeliner is up in her hairline and she turns the TV off because she's got these sheet cut ghosts making noise she doesn't even see them but they're just making noise as my wife said that's why you wash your face before you lay down 100 <laughs> percent that and it reduces wrinkles but you know whatever well that's that's all like to me that's the thing that that cements her most as like the the tim burton stand in because like tim burton loves trash like <laughs> True. Tim burton loves <laughs> loves loves weird garbage Tim Burton is definitely the kind of guy who, if he hadn't gone to art school, would have like bought a wrestling company like Billy Corgan did. <laughs> I, now I want to see that, by the way. But yeah, because put him and Billy Corgan together, you can get some strange things going on. Oh, they would hate so, each other. <laughs> they would. They would. Well, Billy Corgan hates everybody, including himself. So, but anyway. Um, you, you can go listen to your your favorite band sucks if you want to hear people talk about Billy Corrigan, folks. It's it's all there. There's our podcast plug for the show. So, uh, no, but I love that they're doing the sheets. They're trying to scare. And I, I love how subversive 
Tim Burton lays this in where Winona Ryder's like, y'all please stop doing that weird sexual stuff while I'm next door. Holy God, I died. (laughs) That implies she's had to tell me that before. I think that's a teenage thing and a second marriage thing. I'm just going to put that out there and we don't need to address it any further. My parents are divorced. We don't need to address address that topic any further. (laughs) But it's a real thing. Well, I mean, she did weirdly lick his nose, so there's definitely some other weird stuff. There's happening. something kinky going on there, and I'm going to be the first one to say it. You know, it, it's okay. True, probably so. It's just it's funny to me that he puts that out there, and I love how she's got the instamatic camera and she's just you know blasted picture <laughs> after picture, like stop this, and then she's like oh, ghosts all the time. There's ghosts, <laughs> you know, and then right? she goes from seeing them to. Um, finding their handbook right well yeah all that happened like she has a whole conversation with them at this point like are you oh yeah, are you yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean again because ron's nailed it down tim burton's into weird things and so of course there's a night of the living dead reference that are you all zombies under there what are you talking about but that's why i, I do the whole what what time are these people from? Are they Ozzy and Harriet? Because they don't, they act like they don't even know what night of the living dead is that movie was 20 years old at this point holy cow well, they're very simple people, and I think that's something that um, most of us are missing nowadays. Um, we lost that, that 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 simplicity. We say as we're recording on phones, on a Skype, on a podcast. Right. So, so here we are sitting here on our computers doing all this stuff. And um, these people who are in the late 1980s now – well, there, there is that old, there is that old guy in front of the barber shop that, that tells that rambling story about the guy with the long hair, the hippie that he cut his hair off. Right, who he's with. remembering from like ten to twenty years beforehand. Now, talk about random, just in the middle of nowhere thing that <laughs> comes out of nowhere. But right, but he's I, amazing. I actually love that character, but, and I sat there through that scene watching him. We also haven't talked about one other character who does hang around. We got to talk about Otho. And Glenn Shaddix and the performance that he is giving as like this, I, I I called him like a psychic decorator. I don't know what this guy is, but he is a total trip and is a blast to watch. And I grew up with a friend named Martin Dean, who's not listening to this show, but Martin always reminded me of this dude. And Martin would do like theater <laughs> wow. shows and he would do stuff. And I was like, holy cow, it's the guy from Beatles here. Right, <laughs> he so looks have... like him. He talks like him. <laughs> he's everything. And it's, it's well, so funny. And to his credit in college did a great performance in damn Yankees as the devil. So Martin's a good actor in his own right, but it very much reminded me of this guy. So maybe that's why I like the character of Otho, but he is funny to watch. So now I want to be friends with your friend, but I do have a friend who's probably not listening to this podcast either, who, um, Alex Russell, who is Otho, you know, Otho personified, and he wouldn't want to admit it either, but 100% we all know an Otho, even whether we want to admit it or not. Ron, who's your Otho? If you don't know an Otho, does that mean you are the Otho? Yes. I was just trying to figure that out. I have an Otho that's a friend of a friend, and he's a he's a, a, a weird kind of weird big dude who who doesn't dress like Otho unless Otho was like really into Iron Maiden. <laughs> but he has an avant garde wow. radio show on like community radio, 
and that seems like a very much like an Otho thing to do. Like Otho was probably doing like East yeah. Village Radio or something. <laughs> yeah, if Otho was alive right now, he'd have a podcast. Well, like no doubt, he'd have he'd have a blog, the whole he'd have a YouTube channel with he'd have an Instagram account, he'd have a Facebook following, he'd be like the king of social media. He wouldn't have to do anything but sit in his house. Yeah, Otho would have a Otho would have a Twitch. Uh, oh, there you go. And he yes. would do like live streams of paranormal investigations. The, while while redecorating the house, that would be his his kitsch. Would be I'll investigate your paranormal house and I'll redecorate it at the same time. So. These shades scream so 1940s, like the woman who hugged herself here. You can hear it, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, no, I like him. I think he's funny. He's he's a presence that will play a bigger part as we go forward. But we've established Lydia can see them. This is kind of a big deal, but th- you know they don't know what to do. And so we've met Beetlejuice finally. They go and dig him up out of the model, and you get Michael Keaton in his longest scene put together the, I, I don't know. I counted at least like 12 ways that he physically assaulted Gina Davis in this scene. And Wait, hold on, I think it's hold on. more uncomfortable as I watch it. Can we go back though? Can we go back to why is Adam <laughs> digging through the model that he made? Well, because you have to this... dig him up. Right. So I understand that, but this is a model that Adams made. So I guess there's this, this, this suspension of disbelief of, and me sitting there, I was like, but he made this sucker. Like, how can a coffin suddenly appear underneath all these layers of stuff that he well, has as, as, put there? Well, hold on. As we figured out, like throughout the movie, Juno puts a, you know, house of ill repute there and people can, ghosts can manipulate the physical entity that they're around. Oh, I completely and, understand yeah. that. But this is his, like, call to life. And why would we have to dig so far from Beetlejuice if he's, like, he should just pop out of the ground like some sort of, like, magnificent phoenix or something. Nothing worth doing and cover comes easy. And maybe that's, mm. also, maybe, maybe that's also what Ron has alluded to, that, like, you cannot trust this guy. He is a shyster. Because if he was really that good, yes, he could just pop himself up. But no, he's got to have you invested in it, right? That's so he ain't that good, is what you're saying. Well, yeah, we'll talk about good or not good he is. But back to, again, the multiple ways of assaulting Gina Davis and trying to make out with Alec Baldwin at the same time. This whole thing is where the movie starts to lose me. And it's it's not that I'm just put off by it or whatever. Like that's it, It's a performance. It's part of the show. It's that... I don't, this is like the worst sales pitch ever. Like I've, I've been in a lot of places where I've seen people interview for positions through you know, 20 years of doing what I do for a living. And I've seen a lot of people bomb interviews like horribly in, in spectacular ways. And this may rank up there with one of the worst, like, let me present what I can do for you presentations I've ever seen from somebody. Now, does it make the Beetlejuice character feel less sleazy to you if it's Sammy Davis Jr. rather than Michael Keaton? Because it was originally okay, supposed wait, to be Sammy, Sammy, Sammy Davis Sammy Jr. Davis, Sammy Davis and Michael Keaton cannot even be like put in the same category. I, I'm sorry, I got to stop you. That is like like a sin. That's exactly that's who, who it was supposed to be, though. Yeah, that's who was supposed <laughs> to be Beetlejuice. That would not make me feel any more comfortable. <laughs> no. No, it would, no. It would also be sad to watch that old man try to do all that stuff. I would be sad watching such a talented, like, a dancer and musician 
portray this character, it would just be wrong. I, hey, to, <laughs> on to so be many fair, levels. Hold on, I've seen Sammy Davis Jr. in Cannonball Run too, so it ain't that far down. Okay. Well, well, wait a second. I'm going back to like Gregory Hunt's tap with Sammy Davis Jr. tapping his pants off. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway, again, I've seen Cannibal Run too. That is what I say to that. So <laughs> oh, we're fighting. We're fighting. Anyway, point being, no, that would not make me uh, feel any less weird about it. Nor if it was Sam Kennison, but it does feel like Sam Kennison. He definitely goes to some really like Sam Kennison-y places. And I don't know if that's intentional or if that's just like, because Michael Keaton was a stand-up, right? Yeah, yeah, they're in the same like era of guys. I'm not surprised that they had some crossover with each other. I don't know that they knew each other or anything like that, and it's probably unintentional. I mean, I think I'm reading that into it because I know Kenneth was considered for the role, but um, really what you say, what you see is again, I've seen early Michael Keaton in zany movies and this is what he does. This is, you know, night shift and Mr. Mom and gung ho and all that stuff. This is what I he think, does. I think ultimately it's what he does best. It's not just what he does. It's what he does best because I mean, uh, he's a good dramatic actor. I, now, I, I'll, I'll say that now. I think the guy can do a lot of things. But at this time, in 1988, this is what he was known for, and it was what he was doing best. So I, I'm fine. It's just very weird to watch. But what I'm trying to get at, though, y'all, and what I want y'all to comment on, is this is his presentation to them. And about three seconds of it is halfway serious. Like, there's nothing that would make – especially, you got to know your audience. That's the first rule of sales, right? you got to know who you're talking to. Why would anything he is laying on them work for those people? Like, the only bit that works is when he breaks into actual Michael Keaton voice and he does the whole bit about, like, going to Juilliard and all that stuff. It's because they're hopeless. On, is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah, they're stuck. They don't know. They're clueless. They don't know what's going on. They don't know how to help themselves. And they need anybody. And at this point, um, I mean, it's – it's like an addict who's looking for a fix. I guess, but at least Barbara's got the sense to know saying home three times will get him home. Cause that's the whole bit. You've got to say his name three times, which is, I don't know, you know, that I feel like I was watching. I've seen that played in so many different ways through the years and tropes that I didn't even think twice about it. They bail out of the model because Barbara's got the sense to do home, home, home and doesn't even realize what she's done. She's just screaming her head off. And they get back and she's like, no, I got a plan. And her plan is, you know, those old Harry Belafonte records that you got in the basement. We're going to put those on and they're going to stage this whole ridiculous thing that only works, only works because everybody's sitting at that table from Dick Cavett, who makes a cameo in this to Glenn Shaddix, to Jeffrey Jones, to especially Catherine O'Hara completely sell the bit where they get possessed and dance around to the banana boat song by Harry Belafonte until some shrimp grab them by the face and throw them, you know, off their tables. So I'm not going to lie. Every time Harry Belafonte plays at my workplace, I'm up there dancing. So I, I, I can't (laughs) tell whether they're possessed or whether they're just happy and they had a good bottle of wine. (laughs) This, that scene is, uh, is like that's the scene that everybody knows from this movie. I think we can all be clear about that. Uh, but uh-huh. like rewatching it again, like Catherine O'Hara is just amazing. Like 
she just they all do such a good job of playing like doing the dance doing it like fluidly but also it seeming to be like against their will you know what i'm saying yeah yeah it, that's the the hard part of this and what makes it amazing is they are going along with it but the looks on their faces particularly you know to start with they're like i don't know why i'm doing this I'm just doing it. And and to go back to the dinner party, like it's been a tense dinner party. They're like sniping at each other about somebody landed on her sister today. That's why she's in a bad mood. And, you know, everybody's back and forth. There's all just kind of tense. Right. And Charles is over there trying to get everybody to lick her up and loosen up. And then that's when uh, Lydia starts talking about ghosts. I do find it funny, though. And, and I didn't notice it really until watching it this time for this review. Lydia is the only one that's not involved in that. Everybody else gets possessed and has to dance. She backs up and watches all of it. So Barbara and Adam specifically conjure this to not bother her. They want to make sure they do it to everybody else in the room. And I just thought that was interesting. Well, I think at this point they've already established that they they care for her. Um, And I think that's the difference between everybody that they possess and, and Lydia is they don't give a crap about anybody else. But Lydia, they've formed a relationship with. Now, here's my question. Uh, why would they, would the Maitlands have such an immediate, like, bond with Lydia? Is there something that we don't see them interacting more than that? No, it's because they I, wanted I, a family. And because they're weird throwbacks, they, they like their weird throwback proto-daughter? Well, as, as Beetlejuice calls her, Edgar Allan Poe's daughter, I can totally get it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly it. I think they wanted a family. She seems to be in need of one. That would work, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Okay, so, but but you're right, Ron. It is the scene I think most people know from this movie, or probably everybody knows from this movie. And I'm going to say right now, it's the highlight of the movie. From here, it's all downhill from here for me. Like it, this has happened every time I've seen this movie, even going back to when I was a kid and saw this movie, I was you know, 12, 13, saw this in the theater. And after this, it just all starts to slide because this is the apex. This is so cool. And what's funny is that it absolutely 100% does not work. They, you know, Barbara and Adam run up to their little hideaway in the, in the attic. And they're like, yeah, we really got them good. And they're waiting for them to run out and nobody ever runs out the door. You know, and Lydia has to come up and go like, can you come downstairs and do it again? Because they were really entertained by that, you know, <laughs> and she has to lay all that on them. And they're just so disappointed. It's the one thing I will give Alec Baldwin. He does a good disappointed face because he's just so like floored when she says they weren't scared. Like he actually gives a performance with his face to like, what? Really? Like he thought that was going to work. Yeah. And I don't know why he thought that would work because that seems like an awesome time. I mean, right? I'm with Charles. Like, sign me up. I will do that all day. That looks like awesome. I can't dance at all. Okay. I would love to do that. <laughs> I'm that other lady. I didn't know I could do the Calypso. And you can't until you're possessed, but sure. <laughs> yeah. I don't, to, to me, the, like, the terror, the monster faces that they make in their meeting with Juno are much scarier than, like, mm-hmm. uh, a forced dance party over to a great song. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is like a fun thing. So it doesn't work at all. The idea of ghosts doesn't scare these people off, you know. So what do you, you – where do you go? What do you do, right? And what what we find out is Beetlejuice is still 
out of his cage per se. So he decides to show up and you get the big banister snake. That's the, another image. I think people remember is the big banister snake attack in this movie. It's, it's pretty frightening. I, I, I completely agree with you. <laughs> it is a little, uh, it, it, it's frightening. Um, but I'm going to go back and say, you know, the thing that we get here is that Beetlejuice gives them the moment to, to try to, take some of his advice and scare them away. And then he says, oh, 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 wait, you screwed up. Hold on. Let me fix it. Hold on. I'm here. Let me fix this. Now, do you think he just gave them enough rope to hang themselves to make himself like necessary to the process? Well, absolutely. I think that <laughs> the one thing that, that is, obnoxiously wonderful about Beetlejuice as a character. Um, Beetlejuice is, in my opinion, 100% narcissist. He's there for himself. He's not there for anybody else. He's there to make himself look Mm -hmm. good. So he's going to give them the opportunity to fail so that he can come in and save the day and, um, you know, take the, steal the spotlight. That he does. I mean, he's got, he's got them dead to rights at that point. And then, Barbara intervenes and puts him back in his cage, basically by saying his name again three times. You would seem like you would have to say it like in reverse or something. I don't know. Anyway, uh, that would be I'm, difficult to say in reverse. Do we really want to go down that road? I, well, hell, Alec Baldwin couldn't say it right to begin with. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, he couldn't get it out because his teeth kept getting knocked out. So this is also true. So, but anyway, <laughs> this this fails miserably. So like, it doesn't work at all. <laughs> And so they they slink back over, you know, back to the model, and they have the argument with Beetlejuice, and that's when the the House of the Rising Sun pops up in the model. And and I love how Barbara, like, immediately, like, every good wife ever looks immediately at the husband, like, why did you build that there? I didn't. You know, I'm like, I've had that exact conversation so many different times. So, I mean, but, you know, that's what happens. And so they they realize that, no, they get called away by Juno because she's like, that's my idea because you two idiots tried to do this. And what you should have been doing was something scary. And I'm with you, Ron. They the faces that they conjure into the claymation crazy stuff in Juno's office are legitimately frightening looking. That's really scary looking stuff. Yeah, it's it's super unsettling, possibly because it's like claymation. I've always found claymation stuff like that and like large Marge to be re- weirdly unsettling. Yeah, you know that's probably why I wasn't a big Pee Wee fan because I saw the large Marge scene just passing through on television once, and I was like, nope, I'm out. And it's not like I, <laughs> I was not into that. Jason chopped people's heads off. Sure, that new. No. We all have our triggers that turn us off. You want to know why? Large Marge works at my school. Jason doesn't. So that's that's what that was about. (laughs) (laughs) It always makes it um, a little bit more frightening when you can find somebody real to apply to a character. But they're going to have to go back and do the scare. You get the deets is sitting outside and they're, what is that? It's like a... An outside porch, it's like it's got one wall up, but then there's no other walls. It's that's such a strange design thing, but Otho's in like a caftan, and now they're drinking mimosas with them while they're talking about bringing up Robert Goulet, the, the great uh, real estate artur or whatever from New York, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do, and they they decided that that's when Otho gets his hands on the book at this point, because they've gone up and they've seen the model, and you know they know what's going on at this point. And 
as the Maitlands are getting ready to go back, there's something else going on that's, it's, I don't know, it gets glossed over a little bit here in the movie, but Lydia is going to kill herself. She is going to throw herself off the bridge at some point because she is in such despair. And that is a weird left turn this movie takes. Because yeah, I there's no build that, up I to that character. I never took that character as suicidal. I just took her as kind of goth and into strange things. I didn't take her as suicidal. So no, there's no build up to that moment where she's writing her suicide note. And when we are done, I'm going to kind of resolve that for everybody, but I'm not going to resolve it right now. Um, <laughs> Cause I'm not allowed to, cause Jay's made me put like a zipper over my mouth, like Gina Davis. But anyway, no, there's no buildup to her like random suicidal note at all. And it comes out of, for me, it came out of absolutely nowhere. Yeah, she definitely doesn't seem like especially morose or anything. She seems like, you know. 13 year old crying for attention. Yeah, she seems like, like a yeah, teenager like, who needs attention, but she doesn't seem like especially depressed, especially when she makes cool ghost friends. Right. And see, here's the thing. Like she plays it off as the, I wanted to get where you were. Well then wouldn't you, well, she would let me play with a Ouija board and trying to conjure something. <laughs> you don't kill yourself to do that. I, it's, it's such out of left field. Again, it's, it's part of why I say this movie starts falling apart in the second half. Cause you needed to set that up at some point. Like we get that. She's not really happy. Like I think Catherine O'Hara has a great line. Like you're miserable in New York. You're miserable here. You know, or whatever, but you're the only one whose life hasn't been (laughs) put in upheaval by this move. She's also the only person that hasn't been in Vanity Fair or something like that. So maybe (laughs) maybe that was what it was. I don't know. But I mean, really, like this, they didn't build that up enough for me. It comes out of nowhere. But the whole purpose is we've got to introduce her to Beetlejuice so that in the third act we pay that off because that's how he meets her. And, you know, he tries to get her to say the name. We do the little charades game and she almost does it. And then she doesn't. And it looks like she's about to again. And that's when Barbara and Adam show up in their claymation outfits. And after they scare her, she's trying to you know figure out what's going on. And then she lays that whole I wanted to get to where you were. And then the thing is, is that Barbara just says to her, like, no, we're dead. And I'm like, yes, this is established. Like, how does that help her, her problem? It's, it's clunky dialogue. Yeah, we get that. That's what the whole movie is about, the fact that you're dead. And But the, but the I think the th- character arc that we get here, if there is a character arc, is that at that moment, Lydia has found two people that she cares about, that she wants to be with, that she would give her life to be with. And yeah, I know I'm getting deep for Beetlejuice, but that's really what we get at this moment, is these are the two people, instead of her stepmother and her father, these are the people that mean the most to her. I don't disagree with that's what is supposed to be happening there, but I'm arguing that it's not earned at that moment. They have not set that up for me to get that. Yeah, that that doesn't seem especially earned. And it makes me wonder her whole relationship with her father and her stepmother, Lydia's relationship, that is, is her mother dead, like her birth mother? Right. So they don't address that in the movie. I don't think they do. No, they don't. They so, don't, and um, we'll, we'll talk about that at the end. We can talk about Ron, that at the end, I, absolutely. Ron, I, I took it more as what you had said earlier on, that this is just the second wife, <laughs> you know, that the other <laughs> one is somewhere else. And for and, you know whatever reason, Lydia decided to stay with that. I don't know. Uh, but they don't, they don't explain it. They don't address it because they're not there. You know, we've, we've introduced all this other weirdness, and we haven't bothered to build that 
character. Yeah, there's there there there's no prequel to Beetlejuice. <laughs> All of a sudden, we're we're shoved into it. There's there's no descriptor. We get the model at the beginning in the in the beginning credits. We get the model, which is um I affectionately called the dollhouse. Um, in the beginning of the movie, and then we're suddenly thrown into all of it. Now, I think personally that Lydia's Lydia's mother's dead. I get that based a lot on the the weird relationship she's got with her father, the weird lack of affection. Maybe Lydia reminds uh, Jeffrey Jones of his late wife, and that has some sort of alienation. She doesn't seem especially like. There doesn't seem to be like a good parental bond between her and her dad. She doesn't seem to be much like her dad at all in terms of her personality and her dress and her affect. She seems like she was very much like mama's girl and now mama is gone. So that would that also would add a little bit of weight to her suicidal ideation like that does come out of nowhere. I think we all have moments as teenagers where we kind of delve into that. So I don't know. I, I don't know whether there's generally um, one trigger, um, but she never refers to uh, her as her mother and she's always dressed in black. So I, for me, when I initially saw this movie back in 2010, Jay, 2010, remember that I did assume that her mother was dead just based on the way they costumed her and her, the way she spoke about her family. You make a good case, Ron. The only thing I would say is that she strikes me as the kind of girl that is very much like her father and is trying to not be. And I'll base that solely on the fact that when Barbara and Adam try to tell her, well, we were hoping we could scare you so you would leave. And she does this whole like Wall Street speech about like, you don't understand the deeds and walking away from equity, you know, <laughs> and like does this whole greed is good kind of thing from, from Gordon Gecko to him. I'm like, oh, she is a lot like her dad. That's why they don't get along because they're exactly like each other and he can't stand himself either. And so I, I, that's the way I took it. But you know what? You guys make good, good points. It could be the point is we're not told. We don't know. But the, the Maitlands have come back to say, like, no, we, we want y'all to stay. We want to see if we can work out an arrangement here. And she's like, well, let me go see what's going on because she hears all this commotion downstairs. And she does get a great line on Otho when he's reading the book and he's talking about, I can conjure people and all that. She's like, you can't even change a tire. You know, and I did get a good laugh out of that, but we we're all set up now for the big act three, which is the seance. And I have to say again, for 1988 and for $15 million, which was not a lot of money. It was, it was a good budget in 1988, but that's not a ton of money to make a movie. I mean, in 1988, they made a Halloween movie for like 10 or 11. So it's not much more than that. They do a great job with the effects when he conjures up Adam and Barbara here into their wedding garb. Oh, not only do they do a great job with the effects um, in regards to the floating image of Barbara and Adam, but the makeup is amazing in this movie. Yeah, especially the uh, the post uh, exorcism makeup when they're slowly like it looks like they're drying out. Decay. Decay. Yeah, that looks great. Yeah. That looks awesome. Yeah, it looks wonderful. It was very, it was very like psycho Mrs. Bates kind of thing going on. I was like, man, this is that's really well done. And <laughs> that, you know, I mean, it looked it's good. It was it was it was a good look for the whole bit here, and it's all set up though, so Lydia can go and and 
make the deal with the devil, literally, uh, with Beetlejuice. And I'll say this. This is my favorite moment with Michael Keaton is Beetlejuice. When he's sitting on those two tombstones and he's got on that zebra suit, which is ridiculous. And he's just kind of biding his time because he knows she's got to come back at some point. And we haven't talked much about the score. Danny Elfman music is always like twisted circus music anyway. But the the tones and the notes he's hitting here when Beetlejuice gets that smile on his face and he's like, well, OK, then I'll take care of him. So you know what you got to do. And he's just waiting for her to say the name three times. There's a cynicism to that or not cynicism. There's a sinister note to that that is totally good. It's the best part of the act three, in my opinion. So I'm a big Danny Elfman fan. Um, I'm, my thing in high school was, okay, hey, Irene, you want to go see a movie? And I'd turn to whoever I was with and say, that was so-and-so composing the music. And they'd be like, how do you do that? And I'd be like, I don't know. But he, um, Danny Elfman is a very um, – he and James Horner are two composers that have very similar themes that repeat in their music. And Beetlejuice is one of those that he doesn't actually – from what I remember, he doesn't repeat one of his themes throughout the entire um, the entire movie, which is great for me. Um, there are some chord progressions thing. that are no, no, no. There are only yeah. there are some chord progressions that are the same. But my point is that um, he doesn't repeat previous films. Like James Horner has like a line that he repeats in every film just as a signature. But um, but for Elfman, he doesn't do that for me. Uh, and maybe I need to listen to more Elfman. Maybe I'm not as aware as I, I think I, I am. I would, I would say if you go, if you watch this movie and go watch Tim Burton's Batman, you will hear the natural progression from Beetlejuice to Batman. It, oh it's yeah, in, it's there. You know. I mean, I mean, maybe that was Michael Keaton like, inspired. Yeah, maybe Michael Keaton has been Danny Elfman's muse all along. <laughs> <laughs> Give Michael Keaton his credit. All right. He gives this great smile. It's showtime. And then it is, for me, it totally undercuts when we get the literal circus music. And he pops up out of the model with the two inflatable things. And <laughs> I, I realize it's supposed to be weird and goofy stuff, uh, but I don't know. It doesn't play. I do have a question, though. Did Robert Goulet and his wife get killed? Is that what we're led to believe here? <laughs> I think that that's like the unwritten thing like nobody speaks about it again but they like fly through the roof and i'm like <laughs> i mean he went flying out of the top of a building i don't see how he lives why does he kill those two people <laughs> because shouldn't he take care of otho and the maitlands i mean what why does he kill maxie dean and his wife what did they do other than just be new york real estate people well, he can't kill off the Dietzes because they own the house, and then he would really tick off Lydia, who he wants to marry him in order to make sure that he is able to continue living or be uh, reincarnated, hey, no, well, right? That, that was the deal. That was the deal, though. Like, she had to agree to that right, right, right. he would come out. So, yeah. so his whole thing is, you know, he just wants to do this absolute carnage, and, you know, it's fun, so he offs them. And Otho... Otho's just fun to play with, and I think what we get with Otho at this point is, you know, he he has this sense of style, and then he goes ahead and changes it back to the 70s, and he has a panic attack and runs away. So, you know, his whole goal is to scare away everybody. Um, So Otho gets fashion death instead of actual death. Otho gets fashion death with his pale blue suit and his white shoes. Yeah, Otho... (laughs) That was one of the weirdest things that I laughed at in this movie. Just the look of horror on his face as he ends up in that powder blue (laughs) 
leisure suit looking yep. thing with those white Clark Griswold shoes. <laughs> yes, I'm glad you called that out because it's exactly what I thought of. So <laughs> was Clark shoes from vacation. So <laughs> but no, he runs away in horror, and then we get the wedding from Hades. Uh, because Beetlejuice is now in his red tuxedo and Lydia's in her dress and we get, I don't, where does the guy come that performs the, the out of the service? fireplace? Out uh, of the yeah, but fireplace. What, what is he a former leprechaun? <laughs> what is that? I, you know, I, I, maybe somebody who got stung by a bee and their face blew up. I have no clue. He's almost like one of the little uh, dwarf helpers from phantasm. He's like a normal sized person that just got kind of like squashed down. So maybe he's like on loan from the tall man. (laughs) Forgive me, but I did also think that it was one of the goblins from Troll 2. It maybe just showed up for a day. (laughs) He's not eating eating any vegetables, Jay. This is true. He's not eating green corn. So he can't be from that lot of folk. Yeah, he's not not sexily eating corn. Was it corn? (laughs) It is corn. It's corn. Yeah, it's corn. So, and Irina has no idea what we're talking about. No, I don't, because I'm so clueless about so many things, and I just sit here and smile. And nobody can see the fact that I'm sitting here smiling and looking pretty. You need (laughs) Troll 2 in your life in such a bad way, Irina. No, 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 I don't think I do. Do I really? Do I really, really need it? Ron, you know this. She she needs this in her life. We're going to have to make that happen. Do yeah, I need uh, to watch the first one or just no, Troll 2? No. No. Troll 2 is actually not related at all to Troll 1. <laughs> no. I, troll 2 is not even related to itself, I reckon. So, <laughs> okay. You know what? There are movies like that out there. I'm just saying there are movies like that out there. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about Troll 2 some other day. Beetlejuice is trying to force through the marriage. We get some hijinks. And... Of course, it's up to Adam and Barbara to stop it. And I love how, though, that the way they ultimately resolve this is he zaps Barbara into the netherworld. And her first thing is like, where's that sandworm that I beat the hell out of early on? I'm going to go get that and I'm going to bring that back. (laughs) And she figures out how to direct that back through the door to get him just in time. Like, that's actually a decent resolve, even though we haven't really set up how she controls them, but we did early, kind of, because she snapped that one. I don't know. Like, what do Wait, you it's no different than, like, taming a horse or, like, breaking in a horse. She just does it real fast. So well, she's the sandworm whisperer? Well, Jay, yes. if It's like Dune, man. It's like a Dune moment. I was about to make a Dune reference. Ooh, I beat you. I was about to say, if you walk without rhythm, you won't attract the worm. So she must have did some Harry Belafonte dancing. <laughs> she had a time step. She tackled that temptation with a time step right out there in the, in the sand dunes. That is perfect. So, <laughs> but that's it. You know, that's how we get out of this crazy thing. And what I, I, we didn't talk about it, but like the art also traps Charleston and uh, Mrs. Dietz for a little bit, uh, Delia, to, and holds them together. And at the end, they're all kind of staring at each other like, hi, because they can now see Barbara and Adam as well. And they just because, give this like polite smile. Yeah, like, <laughs> well, n- nice to meet you. <laughs> so, I see you're friends with our daughter. So, um, <laughs> so how are we going to do this? And how they do it, explain to me this. Like, I, I've never quite understood. Barbara and Adam are redecorating 
the house, but are they like just redecorating like part of it, and then the Dietzes live on the other part? Like, how does dude, this work? Dude, I was watching this and I was like, what the hell just happened? Because there's no explanation, and we don't see all we see is the Dietzes in the office because she comes in with her latest sculpture, which is you know a Beetlejuice sculpture, and she scares the crap out of him. But we don't see whether they've remodeled that office, and it it, it leads you to believe that. They put the house back to what it was before and that she just kind of said, okay, I give up. Maybe she's just going to fill the outside of the house with her weird creations, like that uh, single wall thing that they're hanging out at. So maybe they've they've got a, a piece that she gets the land and they get the inside of the house to express themselves respectively. So one of the things that we notice here at the end of the movie, when uh, Lydia is doing her whole like dancing in the air thing is the wallpaper has been replaced, but we still have like an echo of gray paneling up through the second floor of the house. So my question is, you know, do the Dietzes have the second floor and the Maitlands have the first floor? Because that's kind of what it feels like. That's what I was asking, but Barbara is like getting more wallpaper together. So I don't know if they just haven't gotten that far yet or what. No, I think they're wallpapering the first floor is really where they're going here with the, with the end of the movie. I just think it's amazing that ghosts can still operate wallpaper. I mean, yeah, I can't even wa- operate wallpaper, and I'm a you know a living human being. But the the whole deal is we'll possess you and let you dance to Harry Belafonte if you get a good grade on the math test. Right. But we can protest the science test for religious reasons. I'm going to get good grades on every math test I ever take from here on out. So you can dance to Harry Belafonte music? 100%. While flying? Absolutely. No regrets. Well, I guess if that's that's the payoff, then YOLO. So, (laughs) well, well... We're at the part of the podcast where it's time to get final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, Shake Sonora, what are yours for <laughs> Beetlejuice? That's you, Irina. Oh, that's me. Yeah, look at me. I'm slow. So, um, we know I'm stingy with my my popcorn. I'm I'm gonna say we're gonna do a medium popcorn here again. However, let's take out a couple of kernels as I like to do every once in a while, uh, because I don't know whether I'll go back and revisit this again unless my children beg me to. I'm going to go with a medium popcorn with some extra butter. I, I liked it more than Irina did. Uh, but it, it, you're, all the points that have been said about it not hanging together like a movie movie are completely valid. But it's one of those flicks that I could watch like pieces of then zone out then zone back in for the part i'm interested in then zone back out for a while and then zone back in when beetlejuice shows up uh and i admire the commitment of michael keaton to this role like he's clearly he's clearly working hard to sell this character and he's really putting out a lot of energy and a lot of the highs i think are really high especially like the 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 dance number around the table that's pretty great um you know i like a lot of the afterlife bureaucracy stuff uh i really appreciate the stop motion effects when all the sculptures come to life and and uh trap them because they look extra creepy then i kind of like the aesthetic that tim burton has going on it's this weird blend of all these b movie 
special effects all in the same flick. Uh, but it, I zone out enough while watching it to not that it can't be a large popcorn. Like I've said before, this movie is half good, and the half that's good, I can rewatch forever. And the setup all the way through the Deo song. After that, man, it it really drops. It drops bad, and it kind of recovers in the end because I'll agree with you, Ron. Michael Keaton, when he's on screen, is giving it everything he's got, and it's it you can tell, and it's working because it's bringing the rest of the cast along. The fact that Catherine O'Hara is so much fun in this, I really like. We get less of her as the movie goes on, so I think that's sort of to the detriment of it. Um, and I, this is one that I'm always frustrated with, and it's it's when, again, I go back to when I start talking to people about Tim Burton movies that they never resolve well. And I said, you can go all the way back to Beetlejuice, which I know it's not his first one, but you can go all the way back to this one. And it, something about the endings, it just never works. And this one is one of those that just never works. So it's definitely medium popcorn. And I give it that medium popcorn that I reserve for movies that I feel like had great potential and they just fail. In some way or another, like they just don't make it and they don't even fall apart in a spectacularly fun way to watch. It just sort of ends and then it, it just comes out of nowhere. And it's like, well, and now we're dancing to Harry Belafonte. Again. And so the highs of it are definitely good, but the lows of it certainly bring it down. But I, I'll tell you, like I know a lot of people and I know Kevin Smith's made like a whole cottage industry out of making fun of what the sequel is going to be. The Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian. If you've read the treatment for that, it's actually pretty good. It's, it sounded like it might be fun and they just never got it going. And as of this recording, there's talk that they're going to finally do it. I don't know that that'll ever happen. I guess if it does, maybe we can come back and talk about this all again. But I said at the beginning, there was a specific reason that this got back into my brain again. And it's all <laughs> Irina's fault because <clears throat> Irina's first official show with us uh, or review was a musical and we did Chicago. And so she starts sending me soundtracks to musicals and she's, I don't know how we got on Beetlejuice, but she said, Oh, that's a musical. You should listen to the soundtrack of it. She sent me the YouTube channel of it. And I listened to that thing like once through for like three days in a row while I was doing stuff at work. Bought the soundtrack to it. Oh, no! It's in, it's in my <laughs> iTunes. I listen to it on road trips. I, because it's amazing. Like because, the... because here's the thing I will say about that. And I haven't seen the, the performance yet, and I really want to. But Anthony King and Scott Brown, the writers that, that made the musical, fixed everything that we – or a lot of the things that we've complained about in this movie. Liddy's mom is definitely dead. It is a big thing. They set the whole depression angle much better. Right. They pay off all the other stuff. So the, all of this is Irina's fault, and so I'm going to pass <laughs> it to her now to explain how this came to be. So one of the wonderful things about this is um, I saw Beetlejuice the musical, which is now on Broadway, but I saw it in D.C. in their original reveal. Um, and I hated the movie. I'm like, there's no lie. I gave it a medium popcorn with like a couple of extra kernels because it's not one of my favorites. It's not one that I would watch normally ever, but um, there was something so wonderful about the way they resolved all of the questions we had. They um, have, a, they open the, they open the show aside from explaining what's going on with, you know, with Beetlejuice and, and his song of the whole being dead thing and 
God love Alex Brightman for his um, portrayal of Beetlejuice. But they go straight to Lydia. There's no hesitation with the song of Dead Mom. And the lyrics are Dead Mom. I'm tired of trying to iron out my creases. I'm a bunch of broken pieces. It was you who made me whole. So we get this whole vibe from the beginning where we understand that her mom's dead and she is in mourning for her mom. She's looking for a replacement, which we don't get in the movie at all. It's like we miss all of those little pieces and we're introduced to Beetlejuice much sooner than we are in the movie. He has a much bigger part, um, which gives us a little bit more understanding of where he's coming from, where all of our other characters are coming from. Now, um, I'm not going to say go out and buy tickets on Broadway because it's probably sold out, but um, I'm going to say if you ever get the chance to sit down and listen to the soundtrack, the entire movie is going to make sense again, or for the first time. Yeah, I'll, I'll second that. I think just listening to the soundtrack, you can get a pretty good sense of how it goes. And it's one of those things that I've got a trip coming up to New York sometime in the next year for work. I'm going to carve out time to try and go see this if I can, because I just want to see it. I've, I've kept up with it and I'm fascinated by it because, again, I think they've fixed a lot of the stuff. I wanted to ask you, Ron, if they did bring back Tim Burton and Michael Keaton and Winona Ryder and tried to do a sequel now, what do you think it could be? Could it work? Uh, man, I don't know if it's going to work because I don't know if Michael Keaton has that energy anymore. I mean, that's it's been yeah. a long time since 1988, you know, and he's still doing yeah. great work. I mean, don't get me wrong. And he's still, you know, uh, fairly, he's still pretty funny and he's still, I think he could still do it, but like my, I don't, I have more doubts that Tim Burton can't do it than mm. I do about either of the actors. And I do have some reservations about uh, Michael Keaton having to go through the makeup again and having to put forth that kind of energy. Cause he, he is just like sticking your finger in the light socket when Beetlejuice shows up on screen. Like he's immediately like, this is a guy I have to pay attention to. He mm. immediately like peps up the movie and he brings the energy level of everyone involved up in every scene he's in. And that's asking a lot for a dude who's in his sixties. Yeah. He's almost 70 at this point. So yeah, I, I don't know what they'll do. It'll be curious. I'll say again, the thing the musical does, and I think it, it, it marries what the television cartoon kind of got right too, is they took a little of the sinister bit off of Beetlejuice and made him and Lydia better friends and it's they melded some of that into the musical you can tell and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm am i the only person that watched the cartoon raw did you watch it at all yeah, i watched, I watched it. the cartoon <laughs> well uh, i didn't watch tv at all when i was a kid but for some reason the beetlejuice cartoon i watched i didn't watch the movie <laughs> but i watched the cartoon um i remember watching it with my my little brother on cable we would watch the beetlejuice show because the cartoon because it was so much fun um it took this character from being a sleazy old man to being this like fun loving ghoul. And I appreciated that. And that's what is reflected in the musical. Yeah. He's still got a little sleaze tube in the musical, but much more fun loving and, and a fun performance. I'd be curious to see what they do with it. I, again, I will believe it when I see it coming. Uh, they talk about a lot of stuff and rebooting everything from the eighties now and bringing it back and all of that. And 
half of them, I don't know. But, you know, for years I said they'll never do a Top Gun sequel. And then I saw that awesome trailer and I'm like, OK, yep, I'm there. So, I cried. You know, we'll, we'll see. So, yeah, it, it'll it'll be there. But um, we'll see what it looks like if indeed it comes. But it's been fun talking about Beetlejuice with you two folks. Tell, uh, it's been fun talking about Beetlejuice with you two weirdos. So tell folks how they can find you on the Internet, Ron. You can read my writing at uh, denofgeek.com and denofgeek.us. I'm working on a piece right now. By the time this goes live, it will be, who knows, it should be ready, but it's about the best in currently active horror television. And you'll see more TV show reviews. Uh, I mean, when American Horror Story starts back up, and, you know, I keep my writing there. And Irena? Um, you can follow me on Instagram at i.nerd, E-Y-E dot N-E-R-D, um, and Twitter at I-Sing, E-Y-E-S-I-N-G, and you can follow my theatrical adventures. Indeed, and Irene does some pretty cool Doctor Strange costuming, as we found as well, so, <laughs> and has friends with, that are good at Photoshop. So, Folks, thanks for listening to this episode. You can find our archives of the podcast feed of our website, filmstrippodcast.com. Please leave us a positive review wherever you find the show and follow the show on Twitter at Filmstrip Pod or search Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook to connect with us there. We would appreciate it if you share the show and always appreciate your support. So for Ron and Irina, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.